You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to Romans 15. Romans 15, we're going to be in verses 14 through 21 today. And uh, I do know we have quite a few guests today. And so uh, we are in the midst of a series called The One Another's. In the New Testament writings, uh, there are roughly 50 to 60 places where a command or a teaching or some sort of declaration is given to believers in Christ in a means in which they are to deal with or live with one another in the body of Christ. And so we've been in this series now for several weeks. We're working through um, not all of the sayings, but the majority of the sayings in this series And today we are in Romans 15, 14 through 21, and we're going to be looking at a verse that talks about instructing or admonishing one another within the body of Christ. Um, There's an additional passage, not that you need to turn to it, but it's found in Colossians 3, 16. I'll be dealing with that one this week in our weekly blog post on our website. Uh, It's similar instruction, similar similar words that Paul uses there for that church um, in terms of what it means to instruct or to admonish uh, one another. But Romans 15, 14 through 21, if you want to follow along with me as we read that passage and then we'll dive back into it. Paul states, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness Filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I would build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. There's three points we want to bring out today. The first one is this, that Paul recognizes that in the church at Rome, and it's always a good reminder when we're reading these New Testament letters to be uh, mindful of the fact that when he writes to Rome and Ephesus and Colossae and all these other places, it's not like they were necessarily under one church building, but it was a, a compilation of lots of small churches, house churches that were together made up what you would call the church in these places. But he talks about a foundation for teaching that they have here, beginning in verse 14. And if you've ever really studied the book of Romans, you might think on the surface level, gosh, that church must have had lots of problems. Because Romans is a heavy, heavy letter. Lots and lots of rich, deep doctrine, lots of challenging statements made by Paul in terms of who they're to be and how they're to respond and live with one another and so on and so forth. But in reality, in relation to the other New Testament churches, Rome was not necessarily a troubled church. 
Uh, in Romans 1, in his, in his beginning to them, in verse 8, I'm going to read through verses 12, he says this about this church. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, and that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says, you're not really necessarily a troubled church. Matter of fact, your faith is being talked about all over the world. That, that, that alone should be the mission statement of every church. Lord, that our faith in you would be discussed, talked about all over the world. You might think, well, how can it go all over the world? Well, nowadays, not in Paul's day, but nowadays we have this little thing called the Internet. And people in far, far away places could hear of what God is doing, both through his spirit and through our obedience, that others might be able to say, we've heard of your faith. So it wasn't necessarily a troubled church, but Rome did have its challenges. A large portion of Paul's letter to Rome, to the church at Rome, deals with this uh, meshing, this interaction of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And a large deal of his writing is about how they should view one another, how they should commend one another, how they should encourage one another, how they should really even think of one another. And the reality is they probably had some issues, uh, in no uncertain part, to an act that Luke records in Luke 18, verses 1 and 2. He says this, After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, from Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we know that there was a point in history where the emperor asked for all the Jews or commanded all the Jews, and specifically the Jewish Christians, to be expelled from Rome. And so Paul runs into these two, and we'll hear more about these two in just a moment. But he runs into these two in Corinth and begins a work alongside of them for the gospel. And so largely what had happened in the church at Rome is the Jewish Christians had been expelled. At a later date, under a different emperor, they were allowed to come back in. And let's just put it this way. They probably came back in and found things had changed. They probably came back into their house churches, which were largely at that point then under Gentile leadership, and realized, oh, wow, well, they, like Paul talks about food, for example, in Romans. Oh, well, they're, they're not really holding to the same food things that we held to when we were here. He talks about different issues of, of how they treat one another and how they, the, the plan that both Jew and Gentile has in God's plan and God's narrative. And, and it may have been they came back and thought, hmm, well, maybe they're, they're leaning a little too heavy on their Gentile teaching than they are on who Israel is and what our role is in God's teaching. They came back and they found change. And, you know, we, we love this phrase, don't we? I don't like change. And so largely Paul writes to encourage them. He writes to encourage them, and specifically in this idea of Jew and Gentile coming back together in the church of God. And so his understanding, according to verse 14, is that they have a good foundation for teaching or instruction. He says, I am satisfied. 
I'm convinced, I'm confident about your spiritual maturity, essentially what he's saying here. Now, Paul's not one for flattery. So if Paul gives you a compliment, it's well-earned. Transition maybe to the Corinthian church, where in 1 Corinthians 3, he's dealing with the church at Corinth and all their problems, and he says, you are infants. You need to be on solid food. You're still on milk. There's jealousy. There's strife woven throughout your church. So Paul doesn't hand out compliments just in a willy-nilly fashion. He, when he says this about the church of Rome, he has intention behind it. He sees them as having this good foundation. And there are three points of this spiritual maturity that I think we see. One, he says that they are full of goodness. It's not necessarily that they do good things, although I'm sure they were doing good things in their community. But this idea of full of goodness has the idea of morality. Meaning that in their morality, they were upstanding. In their morality, they, they were above board. Um, the word goodness here is the same goodness that's listed in Galatians 5 as part of the fruit of the Spirit. So goodness is not just that we're doing something good. Goodness has to do with our morality and how we're living. And in this statement, Paul basically is saying to them, he really believes them to be Spirit-led. Now, Sometimes I think we look back, maybe even to the New Testament churches, and think, well, they just had it easier then. They don't have to deal with or contend with what we had today. Um, the cultural makeup of Rome in that day pales. This, this culture that we're in pales in comparison to what Rome looked like in that day. Incredible, incredible, rampant immorality, sexual immorality. Incredible uh, disparity between rich and poor, between powerful and weak. Tons of idol worship, tons of worship to other quote-unquote gods. The, the pantheon that was built to, as a house of worship began its construction in around 25 to 27 B.C. and, and was fully completed sometime in the early 2nd century. But, I mean, they, had, they literally had a temple devoted to many gods within the city. I don't know where you live. I've not seen any temples devoted to many gods in the places where I've lived. And on top of all that, Rome was eaten up with emperor worship. The emperor was God. The emperor was divine. The emperor Caesar was far, far above even a human being. And so in the midst of that, Paul says, you are full of goodness. I think sometimes we look at our culture and we go, oh gosh, how can we ever rise above it? If they rose above Rome, you and I can rise above this culture. If they had the ability to be morally sound in the, in the culture of Rome, you and I have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to be culturally, culturally sound here. So that's the first mark of maturity. The second one then is this. He says they are filled with all knowledge. He says they're widely uh, competent of the gospel and its application and how to instruct people in that understanding. So it, it might be confused us a little bit then if he says you're filled with all knowledge to think well why did you write this long 16 chapter letter that's full of everything from election and predestination to Jew and Gentile and and Abraham and everything in between look there at verses 15 and 16 for just a moment we're going to pull off of 14 for a moment and look at what he says he says but on some points 
I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, you're filled with all knowledge. You're competent of the gospel and its application. But yes, I've written some things in here to you and I've written them very boldly to remind you to remind you to take these things seriously, to remind you of the, the strength of the foundation of the gospel, to remind you of the strength of the truth of, of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he says, I, I needed to remind you of that even though he describes them as people being filled with all knowledge. I, I've got lots of pastor friends, and uh, we, we all kind of struggle sometimes with what we're going to preach and series and how we're going to develop them and so on and so forth. And I'll just tell you, one of the most common threads among all my pastor friends is this. They all kind of wonder, well, how many times can we preach the same thing? <laughs> but sometimes we need to be preaching the same thing because not everybody's got it yet. Sometimes we need to be preaching the same thing as Paul wrote here in this letter boldly as a reminder to say this is non-negotiable in the life of the church, in the life of a Christian. And so we think typically of being filled as you know kind of being a stopping point if you talk about filling up your car right you there comes a point where that little thing clicks off and you can't put any more gas in that the idea here really is that they were filled with knowledge as much as it was possible for each person in that moment and so let me give you an, an example from just today Gabriel and Kiki and Tobias new believers in Christ baptized into the faith on a spiritual journey it would do myself and Alyssa and Ryan and Jess no good to sit our kids down today and say, okay, now we're going to talk about the doctrine of the end times. I'm going to walk you through what the versions of the apocalypse are, right? They need to be filled with all knowledge that they can handle at this point. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of Christ, the forgiveness that he gives us, that we then give to others. Basic building block fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. That's what filled with knowledge means. It doesn't mean that, that they get to a point where they didn't have to learn anything else. But for every person in the church, Paul's basically saying in the church at Rome, I know you have learned to your capacity to this point. But it's not a stopping point. And so the third piece of it comes really in our second point here out of verse 14. And it's the question, then who teaches who? If they have this foundation, who teaches who? And look then again at what he says as part of verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. In other words, they have this foundation of spiritual maturity that's found in their goodness, that's found in their knowledge, and then by extension of that foundation, they are then able to instruct one another. In a spiritually mature church, there is lots of teaching and instructing that goes on. And let me clarify that even a little further. In a spiritually mature church, it's not just up to a select few. In a spiritually mature church, it's not just up to what well, we instruct and teach in these specific times. In a spiritually mature church that Paul's describing, able to instruct one another, it's that all persons, you, you can remember from last week, if you were here last week, or maybe called it online, we talked about that we are all members of one body. 
It's that all persons recognize their need not only to be disciples, but to make disciples. That this whole thing of this idea of the one another is this reciprocal, mutual agreement between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he says that part of their maturity is seen that they're able to instruct one another. The New American Commentary puts it this way. None were so wise that they had nothing more to learn. None were so inept that they had nothing of value to share. Meaning in this spiritually mature church in Rome, in this culture that was anti-Jesus everywhere you turned, the, the one who had been a Christian for 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, and the one who had been a Christian for one year were on equal footing in that there was something they could do to instruct one another. And how, how, how backwards is that from typically the way we think about church? You, you don't get to instruct, you don't get to teach, you don't get to do anything until you, you've spent this many years in the church or this many years in a position or this many years. Now, certainly we do have some, some points that we have to look at. Certainly we do have to see that a person has maturity, has consistency in their life, that they're not teaching uh, things that are false to the gospel, false doctrine. But the idea here is that in a mature church, they are able to instruct one another. Specifically in this idea, though, of instructing or teaching is the idea of admonishing. Matter of fact, some of your translations even say admonish instead of instruct. I don't know about you, admonish is not a word I use a lot. Here's what it means, essentially. If you look up synonyms for admonish, it says rebuke, reprimand, scold. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would really receive well, or you might not really receive well from me or from somebody else, a brother and sister in Christ rebuking, reprimanding, and scolding you. The image that comes to my mind when I read that is of someone wagging their finger in my face, right? Like you do with your puppy dog when he's chewed on the pillow for the 55th time that day. But this idea of biblical admonishment is not abrasive. It's not instructing or admonishing someone in a way that tears them down. It's instructing or admonishing them in a way, in a bit, in a way that builds them up. One commentary said it this way this week that I read, admonishing speaks of encouraging counsel. And it might be counsel over sin that's in their life. It might be counsel over a troubling situation in their life. It might be counsel over a behavior in their life. It might be counsel over things that are going on around in the world that that believer finds fearful or is concerned about or is just kind of losing their mind about. It's encouraging counsel. It's encouraging instruction. A.T. Robertson says it this way, it's putting sense into the heads of people. Weeding out all the trash, it's weeding out all the garbage, it's weeding out all the lies, it's weeding out all the deceptions, and it is putting sense into the heads of people. This instructing or this teaching is not simply just a transfer of information from one to another. This is information, this is biblical knowledge, spiritual knowledge that we use to encourage one another. And it never says Jesus admonished anybody, the word's not used in the Gospels, but he certainly did that, didn't he? And yeah, certainly there were times that maybe he was seemingly a little rough, bold, but people needed it. 
Paul talks about admonishing other people. In Acts chapter 20, he, he pulls the Ephesian elders in, and he's, he's recanting to them the time that he spent at the church of Ephesus. And he says in Acts 20 verse 31, he reminds them that for three years he admonished everyone there day and night with tears. Now, a surface reading of that makes us go, oh, he caused them all to cry. No, Paul's describing his state. That he had such love for the church at Ephesus, that he had such concern for that church, that he, he bore such a burden for them, that as he instructed, as he admonished, as he counseled, as he taught, he himself was racked with tears. Possibly sometimes tears of joy, possibly sometimes tears of sadness. But what he's describing is an emotional investment that he had in that church, in his admonishing. And so I think there are three important issues when we talk about you and I uh, being able to instruct or admonish one another. The first two are really ones we've already gone through, that we must be full of goodness. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. No one's perfect. But we must be striving to be people who are full of goodness. And that is, again, for that context, that we must be people who are striving to live upright, moral lives. Jesus, long before Paul writes this, made the statement in Matthew 7. Don't try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye before you deal with the log that's in yours. That's what it means to be full of goodness. That before we go finger-wagging, before we go scolding, before we go rebuking and, and calling people on the carpet, we examine ourselves first to see if we are in the position to be able to do that. And if we're not, we repent of it and we bring God's forgiveness into it and then we can step into instructing one another. Secondly, he says we're filled with all knowledge. Again, I know I'm repeating that, but I think this, again, is something we have to be reminded of before we look to instruct one another. Filled with what kind of knowledge? Well, the knowledge of God's Word. We, we don't instruct or admonish or teach from our own personal opinion. Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, proper for rebuke and correction and teaching. And so it means that if you want to fulfill, if I want to fulfill Romans 15, 14 in the body of the church that you serve in and are part of, you need to know God's word. And it doesn't need to be a cursory surface level of the word. You need to be in it. And you don't instruct or admonish on your own personal opinion, but you do so from the truth of the word of God. In 2021, Lifeway Research had a survey and found that 85% of the homes in America had at least one Bible. And that the average home in America has four. And yet that same year, the American Bible Society did a survey that stated only 25% of adults in America read the Bible daily or several times a week. 75% of them read it once a week or less. And let me interpret less for you. That means never. We're not impressive to the world by the number of Bibles that we have. We're not impressive to the world by the translation of the Bible that we have. We're not impressive to the world by, by anything that we might think is impressive to the world. We are impressive to the world when God's Word has an imprint on our heart and we're able to then instruct and admonish one another clearly with a good conscience and our good morality and then they then see changed lives. 
And lest you think that these kinds of surveys deal with people who aren't Christians, let me throw one more at you. Just a few weeks ago, Lifeway did another series of surveys. They do these things periodically through the year. And one of the questions was for an evangelical, and let me just just spell this out, an evangelical, kind of by simple definition, is a person who believes you need to be born again, believes in Jesus' work on the cross, his death and his resurrection, has a high view of, of the truth of the word of God, right? So those are things that that an evangelical is supposed to believe. And they asked the question of these evangelicals surveyed in America, where did they get their main information on issues of legal immigration? 20% of evangelicals surveyed said the Bible. 20%. 40% of evangelicals said their main source of understanding or information or how to think about legal immigration came from media or friends and family. And then that remaining 40% was a hodgepodge of different things. Anytime you or I are asked a question about anything in our culture, our number one source of information and understanding ought to be God's word. Period. And, and, and I understand how much easier it is to flip it on. Oh, that's what's going on with immigration. That's what's going on with politics. That's what's going on with chances of nuclear war. That's what's going on with poverty. That, I understand how easy that is. But we've got a man in this church that I, I deeply admire. And, and the other night at one of our Bible studies, he just said, he, 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 he didn't have a defeated look, but he just kind of like was a moment for him, you know. And he said, man, I am just learning that this is not easy. It's not. But for for a a country where 85% of the homes have a Bible and where the average home has more than four, for evangelicals to say two out of every ten get their thoughts on immigration from somewhere else is is a horrible, horrible statement. We instruct, we encourage, we admonish, we do these things from the Word of God. And then the last piece that I want to share with you from that understanding of maturity is this. We're beginning to see in in this series how the one another's connect, right? So far we've preached on peace and harmony with one another and serving and caring for one another and encouraging one another and bearing with one another and how we're members of one another in the body of Christ Uh, In in the weeks to come, we're going to be dealing with how to submit to one another and how to be kind to one another and how to love one another. And the reality of it is, right in the middle here is this instruction, admonishing peace. And I can pretty much promise you that if we're not seeking peace and harmony and serving and caring and encouraging and bearing with and loving and submitting and being kind, we will not receive instruction from one another. It just won't happen. Unless you, are, unless you are demonstrating to your brother and sister in Christ these other pieces of the one another's, you, you'll struggle in either trying to instruct or to be instructed. Lastly is this, as we close, why does the church need to mature? Why do you you and I need to do this? Why do we need to seek to be full of goodness and seek to be filled with knowledge and seek to instruct and admonish one another? Why are we working through all this? Look again, if you will, at Romans 15 and go all the way down to verse 20. In a sense, Paul's really writing here of why he's written Rome. 
And he says this in verse 20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. After affirming them, Paul kind of gets into his personal testimony here. And he basically is saying to them, he, he talks in the first chapter, he talks later here in Romans 15, around verses 22 and following. He talks about how he had longed to come to Rome. He wanted to be at Rome. He wanted to visit them. But two things really hindered him. One is that I think he realized the church was spiritually mature. Corinth needed him a lot worse than Rome did. But secondly, what he realized was my time is better served going to where Jesus is not known. His calling on his life was better served for him to follow the Lord in obedience to go where Jesus was not known. And so, though he had longed to visit them, though he had longed to be in their presence, though he had longed to be encouraged by them, he was hindered and, and sort of in a sense, if you want to put it this way, he realized Rome didn't need him. Why? Because they were full of goodness. Because they were filled with knowledge. They were instructing one another. They didn't need Paul to be a, a, a helicopter church parent, right? Flying over everything, dotting every, dotting every I and crossing every T. And the church needs to mature. We need to be able to instruct and admonish one another. We need to, we need to shoot for these goals so you can be released for ministry. Let me say that again. The church needs to mature. We need to shoot for these goals of being filled with goodness uh, and, and filled with knowledge and instructing and admonishing one another so that people can be released for ministry. I am always so grateful when I hear stories, and we've, we've had them here in, in this church, and I've seen them in other churches all my life. I'm also grateful when someone gets, like, you know that plaque for teaching Sunday school for 25 years? First of all, don't give them a plaque. Give them something tangible and meaningful. You know where plaques end up? Goodwill. Am I wrong? Give them something tangible and meaningful for what they've poured in your life. But, but the other thing that sometimes gets me is I think, what if that person had only taught five years or ten years? And then that class had become what Paul describes here, so filled with, with goodness and so filled with knowledge that they were then able to instruct one another and that person could have then moved on to a new group. What, what, if, what if that person who has served in the same spot year after year with no break could be allowed to move on? That's why the church needs to mature. There's lots of ways to leave a church, some good and some bad. But we need to mature so that there are people that come to us, maybe one of these three that just got baptized someday, and say, man, I love it here, but there's a church in Cincinnati, there's a church in Seattle, there's a ministry in Latin America, and they are reaching people that have never heard of Jesus. Would you be willing to mature so that you could send them? 
And it doesn't even have to be anything that big. Lest we think that like everybody around us knows Jesus. We are now in a point where in the midst of this culture, in the midst of these towns in central Kentucky, less than 40% of the people attend church on a regular basis. Now, I never equate attending church with believing in Jesus because you can attend church and be a child of hell all your life. But at least in church, they hear about Jesus. Hopefully. And so maybe it's that you instruct and you admonish one another so that you come and you're not going to go halfway around the world, but you just say, man, there's a, there's a community in downtown Frankfurt. There's somebody over here in, in Stamping Ground. There's somebody over on Woodford County side. And, and there are people that don't know Jesus. I need to leave Providence to go do that. They'll only do that and leave when we've sufficiently been a church that's matured where we instruct and admonish one another. I have a secret sort of sinking feeling that sometimes we don't do this as churches because we don't want to see those people leave. What we say is, oh, we got to keep the best for ourselves. No. <laughs> you instruct and admonish and, and get to this understanding of full of goodness and full of knowledge so that you can release someone else because you know there's somebody else waiting in the wings to step right in. And to take that lead, to take that class, to take that ministry, to take whatever it is that person's leaving and take it on so it doesn't miss a beat. Paul says this church had the marks of spiritual maturity, full of, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. I hope you pray for the church that you're a part of. I know today we've got lots of different churches represented by virtue of our guests being here. I hope you pray for the church that you're a part of daily. But I also hope that you'll do this coming out of this message today. I hope you'll begin to pray, God, how do we get better at these things? God, how do I get better at these things? How do, how do I get better at looking at this to be my main source of information about what's going on in the world instead of everything else? How do I get better at, at, at having this so secure in my heart that when I have that opportunity to give counsel, to give encouragement, to address a situation with a brother or sister in Christ, I don't have to fumble and I don't have to, uh, it's there. By the leading and the guiding and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. I ask you to begin to pray those things for your churches. Because church was never designed from the New Testament point of view as being a place where everybody came and stayed. Church was always designed as being a place where everybody came and then some went. Doesn't mean everybody leaves. Doesn't mean everybody's called somewhere else. But if a church isn't sending then a church is not living. And we become a sending church when we're able to instruct and admonish one another from God's word. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.